A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon... Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with white vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down, comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. God, I'm one of the ministers here, and it is uh, always great to be together in church, but especially on Good Friday. If you could get your Bibles open, please, to... um, Mark chapter 15, or keep them open at Mark chapter 15, that'd be excellent. And uh, I'll pray for us and then we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you on this Good Friday for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that he did for us in his life, but especially in his death. We pray now as we consider that for the next few minutes that you might speak to us, that we might hear you clearly and respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is a very special day in the calendar, isn't it? It's Waffle Day. Just to be precise, it's Swedish Waffle Day, which historically marks the beginning of spring in Sweden. Not to be confused, of course, with American Waffle Day, which is August 24. It's also Tolkien, as in Lord of the Rings, Tolkien Tolkien Reading Day today, where fans reenact reenact scenes from Lord of the Rings which just sounds like a blast, doesn't it? March 25. It, it was picked because that marks the downfall of Sauron, whatever that is. And that's why the date was chosen. Today is also Pecan Day, as in the pecan nut, which commemorates the planting of a pecan tree by George Washington at his Mount Vernon estate, March 25, 1775. And the pecan tree sapling was gifted to him by Thomas Jefferson, 
You might not know this, but the pecan, which is native to the southern parts of America, is sometimes called America's own nut. But I thought this was America's own nut. And we laugh mainly nervously, don't we? Today is also Good Friday, and you might wonder whether it's an equally odd thing to celebrate. I mean, it's called Good Friday, but what it commemorates is the painful death of Jesus Christ on a lonely hill outside Jerusalem in the early 30s AD. How how is that good? And why would you celebrate it? Is it really that important? Is it something pretty much more like Pecan Day or Waffle Day? Well, for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to think about that from Mark chapter 15. And we're going to work out what all the fuss is about. And when we do go to Mark 15, you have to admit that the overwhelming mood of that chapter is one of suffering, all kinds of suffering. And Good Friday is about Jesus' suffering. Firstly, there is social suffering or public humiliation. Some of you will know that in the first century crucifixion, that is the method of execution in which a victim is tied or nailed to a large wooden beam and then left to hang for several hours or several days until eventual death from exhaustion and asphyxiation was reserved for the very worst breed of criminals. It was used to punish slaves and pirates and enemies of the state. It was considered the most shameful and disgraceful way to die. Condemned Roman citizens were usually exempt from crucifixion, except where they were being punished for major crimes against the state, such as high treason. And although in kind of depictions of the crucifixion of Jesus, he's normally depicted with a a loincloth covering his nether regions, often victims would hang there naked. You can see from verse 25 in your Bibles there that the soldiers cast lots or kind of rolled the dice to work out who would get Jesus' clothes. Just before the verses in our reading, you can see the Roman soldiers mocking him, spitting on him, falling to their knees in mock homage to him. You can see there in verse 29, have a look, verse 29, even the regular passers-by heaped insults upon him, as did the religious leaders in verse 31, as did the two rogues who were crucified on either side of him. In our culture, when uh, criminals are arrested or convicted, they'll often cover their faces with a a coat, won't they? Or maybe just with their hands. But Jesus was crucified in plain view. A most humiliating death. Social suffering at its absolute worst. And nowhere to hide. So there's social suffering and there's public humiliation, but perhaps... Uh, The most obvious aspect of the crucifixion to us is just the sheer physical suffering. And if you saw the the film The Passion of the Christ in the cinema, you probably just can't shake the intense violence out of your head. I mean, I don't think I can watch that film twice. It's just so graphic. The horror of crucifixion was described by the eminent Roman orator Cicero as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He suggested that the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind and his ears and his eyes. We even get our word excruciating from the painful process of crucifixion. 
And you can look it up if you want to know more about the process of crucifixion. I don't intend to dwell upon the macabre today. But that's actually because the scriptures don't dwell upon the macabre. A little earlier in Mark chapter 15, it describes Jesus beating and flogging by the Roman soldiers in very succinct terms. And if you look at verse 24 before you there, there's just four words. And they crucified him. The scriptures don't dwell on the macabre, the violent, the graphic physical death, because very interestingly, they see Jesus' spiritual suffering as way more significant. So you'll see there in verse 33 that at noon, some three hours after Jesus was first hoisted onto the cross, darkness came over the whole land, filling the sky with singular apocalyptic dread. I remember when I was a a boy being frightened because there were terrible bushfires near our home. And I remember looking up into the sky and seeing a fiery red sun streaked by black smoke from burning eucalypts. But on this particular day, Good Friday, there wasn't even any sun. Just darkness for three hours in the early afternoon. The whole sky hanging heavy with dread. I mean, can you imagine it? And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might know that darkness was a sign of God's judgment. But this time God's judgment wasn't being dispensed upon enemy nations or upon foreign kings who railed against him. This time God's judgment was raining down upon his one and only son, the Lord Jesus, as he hung there on the cross. And if we were in any doubt that he was experiencing intense spiritual suffering at the hands of his heavenly father, verse 34 makes it painfully clear, Eloi, Eloi, my God. My God, why are you forsaking me? Left there he was, absorbing the righteous wrath of God upon sin alone. Even his heavenly father turns his face away. Left there as an unbroken soul relationship that has existed for all eternity is abandoned and is deserted. Just left there. Left there. And we see all three forms of suffering in Mark 15. There is social suffering and public humiliation. There is the physical suffering of a graphically violent death. And there is the spiritual suffering of the judgment of God and an eternal relationship that has been severed and abandoned. And of course, the the obvious question is why? Why did he suffer? Why would Christians commemorate that death I mean, you don't need a reason to celebrate waffles, do you? The waffles are the celebration. And I'm less enthusiastic about pecans and Tolkien, but for the enthusiasts, I get it. But the suffering of Jesus, why? Why celebrate it? I mean, logically, he could have suffered both the humiliation and the pain, as well as the spiritual suffering, because he had broken some serious legal or religious or moral code, but... There's no suggestion that he did that. In fact, from all accounts, that is the consistent testimony of Scripture is that Jesus was the perfect human, the one who uttered no deceit, no lies, who committed no misdemeanor, who upheld both religious and legal codes as well as the commandments of God that govern both external actions and also inward intents. 
So he didn't suffer because of his own actions or his own sins. There wasn't any. Truth is that he suffered. Or let me put it this way. His suffering produces a trade, as in an exchange. His suffering produces a trade. Maybe you can remember back to being a child and you might have traded something with friends. Maybe you've traded something as an adult. I wonder if you've ever been in a trade in which you think you totally got the better end of the deal. There's a myth um, circulating around that Dutch settlers bought the entire island of Manhattan for some glass beads worth about $24. Sounds like they did pretty well out of that trade. What actually happened in 1626 is the Dutch settlers bought the use of Manhattan in exchange for some iron kettle and axes and knives and some clothes from a Native American tribe. So it wasn't just glass beads worth $24, and as it turns out, the Dutch settlers bought it from the Canasi tribe who didn't actually own the land. <laughs> they just sold it anyway. The Dutch would later have to buy the land again from the Wapinga tribe, effectively trading twice to get the land. But still, you'd have to admit the, the Dutch got a good deal out of that trade, didn't they? Especially if you think of what Manhattan would become. The death of Jesus on the cross produces a trade. And it's a trade in which we get a good deal out of it. One of the disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his most important spokesmen, a man called Peter, wrote these words in the New Testament book called 1 Peter. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Christ died for sins once for all, righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And if you look closely, that verse... That quote there is talking about a trade, isn't it? Jesus Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And he, Jesus, is obviously the righteous. I mean, he's the one who did no wrong, which means, logically, that we are the unrighteous, the sinners, if you like. And when it says that, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a jerk, nasty piece of work. It's not a description of tyrants or tricksters or even terrorists because it's a spiritual or a theological concept more than a moral one. It means that you reject God or you don't love him and you can reject him and be nice about it and you can reject him and be a jerk but all of us naturally reject him in our attitudes and in our actions and that means that we are unrighteous. It means all of us are sinners. Unlike Jesus, of course, uh, coming from God, he doesn't reject God, and he always acts rightly and lovingly, perfectly. But in the trade, Jesus, the righteous one, takes our sinful rejection of God, our sinful attitudes, our sinful actions, the whole lot upon himself, and he's punished for them on the cross. Yes, humiliated by the crowds and the soldiers. Yes, beaten up and strung up by the Romans. But more important than that, as we have already seen, is the fact that he is being punished by God for our sins, hanging, as it were, in our place on the cross for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In that menacing midday darkness, Jesus experiences God's just punishment that is due to us on account of our rejection of him, whether that's polite, whether it's aggressive, whether it's indifferent. God the Father turning his face away from his eternal son 
abandoning that relationship that has existed since time immemorial because his son had become repugnant and repulsive to him because his son had become us, bearing our sins and our unrighteousness once for all on the cross. And so you could quite rightly say that Jesus experienced hell on the cross because he did both in the sense that he experienced the just judgment of God upon sin and unrighteousness and because he experienced the rejection and the desertion and the abandonment of God. It made him cry out in anguish. And it turned the sky black. But I said that it produces a trade, didn't I? It produces an exchange. And so in exchange for Jesus taking the due penalty for our sins, our unrighteousness, waywardness, rejection of God, in return for that, we might be treated by God as if we had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived here on earth. I mean, he gets our life and we might get his life. And it's not a fallacy. It's not as though we suddenly become perfect. But in the trade, we're treated as if we were just like Jesus was in his life and so instead of being judged and punished by God as his enemies as we deserve and as Jesus was we might be forgiven we might be cleansed we might be welcomed by God as his children and experience eternity Christ died it says it there plainly he suffered socially physically spiritually for our sins the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect one to bring all those imperfect ones who turn and trust in him to God, to bring us to God, that we might be restored into right standing and relationship with God rather than face the just judgment and the desertion of God that we deserve and that Jesus experienced for us. Jesus indeed paid it all. And that's the trade that we remember at Easter. And I think you will agree that we do get the better end of the deal. It is a wonderful thing. It is a beautiful thing. It's the reason why we call this somber day Good Friday. And it's the reason why it is in a class of its own, far above food celebrations, far above literary celebrations, far above national celebrations. And so the final question really is, how will we respond? Good Friday is about Jesus' suffering. The suffering produces a trade, and that trade compels a response. And if you're unsure of how you might respond, one of the ways you can work it out when you're reading through Bible narratives, Bible stories, is to look at the different players or or protagonists in the story. You might be like the passers-by or the soldiers, and really it's a bit of fun to make a bit of fun of Jesus. You think you were king? What a joke. How ridiculous. Think it was someone special hanging up there? Not really. I mean, if you're actually king, now would be a ripper time to show it, don't you think? I wonder if you've ever thought that to yourself. I'd believe in God if he kind of turned up in front of me. I'd trust in Jesus if he was at my beck and call and he appeared before me, or even if he just did what I wanted him to. I'd believe him then, but 
because he doesn't do exactly what you want him to do, exactly when you want him to do it, you don't take him seriously. And to be frank, it's just a bit easier to have a bit of a laugh and poke fun at him, or maybe just at his followers. Well, there were plenty of mockers that were hurling insults at him that day, and perhaps you are in their good company today, basically, if I pressed you. I wonder if that's you. Of course, you might be like this uh, poor fellow, Simon, verse 21, Simon from Cyrene, which is uh, modern-day Libya, who was just passing through on his way in from the country, and he just has this kind of unexpected encounter with Jesus as the Roman soldiers force him to carry the cross for Jesus up to Golgotha. I mean, he wasn't planning on it. It seemed pretty random to think of it. And we don't hear from him again. Is that you? You have a few short, random, brief brushes with Jesus at times like this Easter and perhaps at Christmas time where you're face to face with Christ, but then not much comes of it. Is that a satisfying encounter, do you think? Does it do justice to who Jesus is and what he has done for us, dying for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God? Could there be more than you have experienced up till now? Well, I suppose that covers most of the folks in the story, doesn't it? Soldiers, passers-by, even the religious figures, even the criminals crucified with Jesus who also mocked him, Simon from Cyrene who brushed up against Jesus and probably moved on, not especially affected by it all. Oh, but there's one more person, isn't there? One more. One figure at the very end of the story, but one who had likely seen all the events play out across the day. He's probably there when the company of soldiers beat and flogged Jesus. He might have even joined in. Would have been there on the way to Golgotha, the place of the skull as Simon carried the cross for Jesus. Would have seen the mockers and heard the insults and heard Jesus cry out in that strange tongue but didn't misunderstand it and then saw him die and realised that amongst it all there was something striking about Jesus and maybe he'd heard stories of the way that Jesus had lived but certainly now he'd seen the way that Jesus died and standing in front of him there, verse 39, he exclaims, this soldier, this centurion, a man in charge of a hundred other soldiers exclaims, verse 39, Surely this man was son of God. Surely he was. And uh, look, it's difficult to know precisely what he meant by that. Uh, the son of God was a kingly title, so perhaps he meant that this Jesus wasn't a pretend king like the soldiers and the religious figures joked about earlier. Maybe he could see that he was real, a real king, although unlike the other kings of the world. Maybe he was saying that Jesus was nothing less than the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited king, as he said he was. Maybe he was saying that right there before him was someone who just had the touch of God about him. But this soldier responded unlike all the others. Friends, today is no ordinary day. It's a day when we remember his suffering. And that suffering produces a trade in which we are offered the better end of the deal 
but that trade compels a response. And you could remain like the mockers and you could stay content with short-lived brushes with Jesus from time to time, but both of those responses reject the trade and that is not without consequences. And we got a glimpse from Mark 15 of what it looks like to not take up that trade, of what it looks like to experience the just judgment of God what it looks like to have him turn his face and his goodness away from us. And you'll remember the sky was black. And so it's not without consequences to reject the trade. And I would humbly and politely and respectfully and urgently suggest that remaining a mocker or an intermittent onlooker is an inadequate response. You see, you could actually be like the centurion, couldn't you? Who saw it all and concluded that Jesus was the Son of God, a king unlike worldly kings, someone with the touch of God about him. And you might need to find out more before you take up that trade. And if that's you, I would invite you to come along on Sunday. And the following Sunday. Sunday after that. Or you could join us for that sole course that Bruce was talking about in term two. But find out more. But maybe you know enough to know today is a day of action. I mean, you don't know it all, but who does? But you know enough to turn to him and to trust in him and to give your future to him and to live a life of love towards him. A friend of mine this week told me that she became a Christian, that is a follower of Jesus and a lover of God, four years ago today. She'd grown up with the stories. She'd even taught the stories to some of her students. But four years ago on Good Friday, she did what the soldier did in Mark 15. She is just a regular person. I bet you'd really like her. And I bet she's just like you. Good Friday. It is a good day to turn away from mocking Jesus. It's a good day to turn away from casual brushes with religion. It's a good day to turn towards Jesus with faith and love. It's a good day to stand before him like that soldier, recognizing Jesus' godness and his goodness. It's a good day to love him. It's a good day to celebrate all the good things that he has done for us and is doing for us. I know that some celebrate today with waffles and nuts and fantasy books, but we commemorate his suffering. And his suffering produces that trade. And that trade compels the response of turning to him. Now that's about all I have to say. What, I'm gonna, what we're going to do now is we're going to have about a minute, a full 60 seconds of quiet. And uh, I'm going to suggest to you that that might be a time for you of reflection. Uh, you might like to think about some of the things we've been thinking about and talking about. It might be a time where you pray to God, you talk to him, you do business with him. Uh, you might want to ask him to help push you along in a journey of discovery. You might want to apologize for your rejection of him, whether it was polite, aggressive, indifferent, whatever. You might want to say exactly what that soldier said. Surely this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the son of God. Anyway, I'm going to give us all a minute of silence, a time to think, and a time to pray. Uh, the musos are going to come up and get ready to 
play some more for us, and then I'll tell you what we'll do next. 60 seconds of quiet. Friends, our uh, muse is going to play us a song in just, uh, uh, just a few moments. Uh, as they do or before they get started, we'd love you to fill out um, this Connect card that Bruce was talking about earlier. And uh, if you'd like to find out more or you'd like to take a next step in your journey of discovery of who the Lord Jesus was, we'd love you to mark that on the card with some details so we can help you along in that journey. Uh, the guys are going to play a song for us. Just